0: Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. We are heading into the home stretch of our three-week fast. I would like to hear from you uh, through the week. Email is a good way. You can call. You can stop in. Always a good idea to find out if I'm in the middle of something before you drive all the way over here. But um, I would love to hear how it's going for you. I usually hear a story or a testimony or two during this three-week fast, something you've learned, um, something you've experienced. But I ask how it's going for you uh, because I want to encourage you uh, to consider mixing it up. Seek the Lord about it. Uh, I, was, uh, <laughs> I remember when Rainy was little, Both kids probably did this, but Rainy was notorious for it. She would participate in the fast, and then it would be like, well, Rainy, what are you going to fast? And uh, I'm going to fast sweets. No sweets. Three weeks, yeah. And then two days later, it would be like, well, I'm fasting sweet drinks. Okay, so no pop, no juice, right. And then a couple days later, I think instead it's going to be fasting chocolate. And it's like as soon as the cravings for one particular thing became overpowering, she'd switch and start fasting something else all right that's not what I'm talking about I say how's it going I'm assuming uh, whatever it is you've decided to swear off of whether it's uh, a category of food a particular meal uh, an amount uh, or if it's tv or something is it making a difference Uh, spiritually is it making a difference And if it's not, again, seek the Lord, ask him. Maybe he'll give you an idea. He'll give you a better idea. Maybe it's like, uh, hey, you know what? This last week, it's going to be nothing but vegetables. Uh, Next, uh, maybe it's going to be, uh, as we really get, you know, the last couple days, maybe a total fast. If you've never done that, I'd encourage you to to try that. It's it's an experience. But ask him. Because here's the thing. I've probably made a mistake all these years in calling it a three-week fast. Because even though I try every year to stress that uh, here's what a fast is, here's what a fast isn't, here's what it's for, just calling it a fast obviously puts the emphasis there. It should be three weeks of prayer because that's what it's about. And I guess the reason I've resisted calling it three weeks of prayer is that kind of makes it sound like we're only going to pray these three weeks. This is when it's most important. Uh, But um, what it is, is three weeks in this church of prayer and fasting. The fasting is for what? To get our minds on prayer. To get us focused on prayer. I'm going to take you to a scripture. You can open your Bibles to Genesis 22. uh, And this is maybe a strange connection to make. Uh, But it's what I believe the Lord laid on my heart. And this is, of course, when God commanded Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Most of you no doubt remember that, that Abraham and Sarah had prayed and believed and waited for years to receive the child of promise. And when Isaac was born, it had to be a miraculous birth because they were well beyond the age of natural childbearing. And Isaac is born. This yes, is the fulfillment of all their prayers and their dreams and their hopes. And God told Abraham to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. You remember this, right? Huge test of Abraham's obedience. And we'll pick it up here in um, verse 11. Chapter 22, verse 11. Uh, it says, but the angel of the Lord. Now, when you see that, the angel of the Lord, and it's worth you know, checking because you know, the, it's, the expression's different from time to time, but often when it's the angel of the Lord, this is known as a theophany or uh, sometimes a Christophany, which is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. This is before he came to earth, but he, you know, he still exists. The, the Trinity, God the Son, existed before Jesus became a man, right? Uh, or theophany, uh, a physical representation of God the Father. This is, there were angels who worked for God, an angel of the Lord, but when it's the definite article like that, the angel of the Lord, this is really God taking on a form that can be seen, heard physically uh, and audibly. And this is who is speaking to Abraham. And and before you do anything really drastic, out of the ordinary, like, I don't know, sacrifice your kid, you might want to hear directly physically from God. And we're going to talk about in a minute why you will never hear that. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now let me say this first. I'll come back around to what this has to do with fasting. But this is super important. First of all, if you've read your Bible And if you've uh, sat under good teaching about this, you know that it was never God's intention for Isaac to die there. Abraham was never actually meant to kill Isaac. Paul even writes in Hebrews that Abraham knew that even if he went and killed Isaac, that God would raise him from the dead. We know that the core of this account is that Abraham was willing to do anything that God told him to do which is the essence of faith. I've said that before when I taught on faith, uh, that the highest expression of faith is obedience. But does it still bother you that God would tell Abraham to do that, knowing what you know about God's word? How could God, who is, we know from his word that he is absolutely opposed to child sacrifice, to murder of any kind, It's spelled out right in the law of Moses. So why would he tell Abraham, and why would Abraham do it? Well, you've got to start here. Abraham didn't have the law of Moses. God would not reveal himself through the law for hundreds of years after this. Abraham was only going on what revelation of God that he had. And God, again, never intended, wasn't like, I don't think I'll make him go through with it. I changed my mind. He never was going to let Abraham go through with it. I'm saying this because Abraham understood God well enough. He knew something about God's heart that even though he would command him to do such a horrific thing, that he would undo it. By raising Isaac from the dead. And you need to understand that we do have the law of Moses. We are not under the law anymore. We're under the law of love, right? And, we're, and we've been forgiven, and the law has been fulfilled in Jesus, but we have seen, you know, progressive revelation is the term. The further you get through the Bible, the more people knew about God because of how he has specifically revealed himself, and the way he ultimately revealed himself is through Jesus Christ, but that doesn't undo anything about the way God revealed himself in the law, and we do know what God thinks about child sacrifice. It was a part of the world that Abraham lived in. I'm sure it was a drag to hear that from God, but it wasn't unheard of in in the world Abraham lived, so... Here's, what you, here's one takeaway. No matter how intense an experience you have, no matter how specific a word of prophecy you receive, if it violates or contradicts what God has already revealed in his word, it is not from God. You hear me? Are you putting, are, so you're saying, and this is where people say, well, so we have a living relationship with a living, breathing Jesus and Uh, I understand the Bible's important, but we worship God, not the Bible. Correct. We worship God, not the Bible. But the God we worship is not going to contradict or violate any principle or any characteristic that he has already revealed to us. In other words, if you have a clear vision of God telling you to sacrifice your child, you did not hear it from God. That is a bad dream or a demon. All right? I I've, I've mentioned this before we had to read this book we had uh, it was an early american literature class when i was uh, doing my semester at uh, indiana university and this novel was famous because i think it was the first novel written in the in the continental united states before before it was even the united states i think uh, but uh it was, it was uh, the name of the book was Wheeland, and it was about a guy who was hungry to hear I and mean, the more he studied uh, his religious studies, and it leaves it vague, but it's, it's, it's vaguely Christian, where uh, it wasn't enough for him to, to be uh, a just man, a righteous man, or even a religious man. He wanted more than anything intimate communication and communion with God. He wanted nothing more than to hear God's voice so that he could do whatever God told him. And this is the crazy part of the book. Uh, the villain of the story is a ventriloquist or a biloquist, as they called it back then. His trick was to imitate others' voices and throw his voice to make it sound like it was coming from somewhere else. And so he simply pretended to be God while he told Wieland to do some things. And eventually Wieland hears the voice of God telling him to kill his family. And he does. He's not a bad guy. He's not given to that. There's nothing in him that wanted to murder, but more than anything else, he wanted to please God. And the whole novel is to call into question, uh, by what authority, whose authority are are you under? Who are you going to let manipulate you? Uh, And my argument in my paper on this, I argued that we have to have something, there has to be a standard to judge any of these things against, whether it's a dictator, whether it's a religious leader, or whoever, we've got to have a solid standard. And for the Christian, and for Wieland by extension, it should be the word of God. God isn't going to tell you to do something. But in order to do that, in order to to guard against that, we have to know his word, right? Always comes back to that. So I had to get that out of the way. The real reason I refer you to this passage is the first part of verse 12 where he says, Now I know that you fear God. My question to you is this. Did God know beforehand that Abraham feared him? Nod your head, yes. Does God know the end from the beginning? Is God omniscient? Yes, yes. Did God learn anything about Abraham in this moment that he did not already know? No. This, like many, many places in the word, it's truth, it's written, it's truth, but it's written in human terms. It's written from Abraham's perspective. It's a little like when the Bible says something like, uh, and God remembered his covenant. Then God remembered Rachel. It's not implying for a second that God forgot about Rachel or forgot his covenant. It means he acted positively in that moment or responded to a prayer of faith in that moment. God's not forgetful. But in the way it manifests in our lives, it looks like finally God noticed. God knew how loyal Abraham's heart was. But there was no way anybody else could know. Certainly not to that degree. So he's saying, now it is known, now it is made known that you fear God. Everyone will know that you fear God above all. Because this is really important. Do you know who else learned something about Abraham that day? Well, Isaac did, for one thing. But Abraham did. Abraham learned a lot about Abraham's heart that day, didn't he? And that's the connection to the fast. God will learn nothing about you, your dedication, your commitment, your love for him, your heart for prayer, over three weeks of skipping meals. But you will learn a lot. Your family will learn. You'll learn a lot about your priorities, your will, your resolve, and your weaknesses. Hungry people can become irritable. Did you know that? In extreme hunger, people can become savages. But doesn't that ultimately simply reveal that irritableness and savagery are in us in the first place? kind of reminds me of a Bible verse that says something like... uh, Seek me, search me, and know me, Lord God. See if there be any evil way in me. You may find that in the moment, in any given moment, a snack is more important to you than prayer. You know better, if it were were a test question, which is more important, satisfying an immediate physical hunger or prayer, you know it's prayer. But you find yourself acting, well, what's a little snack gonna hurt? Well, that's not gonna hurt anything except your fasting snacks. Well, so, but there it is. We know better, and at that moment, don't think it undoes everything. Oh man, I made it a week and a half, and now my prayers are worthless. No! Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. We can train ourselves, at least during these 21 days, to interpret our hunger pangs as a signal or a reminder to pray. We talked a little bit about this in our small group on Wednesday, which is about hearing from God. Uh, that and, and you know, there's nothing wrong. I think I've said this already in some fashion in the last couple of weeks, there's nothing wrong with praying while you're driving to work, while you're in the shower, while you're cooking, while you're performing a task that doesn't require your full and undivided attention. I find that mowing the lawn is a, is a great time uh, to do some praying. Uh, it's good. It's highly recommended. But how good are we about setting aside a time just for prayer? And I think by and large the answer to that question is we're not very good at that. You know, Jesus asked his disciples in the garden the night before he was crucified, what, can't you stay awake with me for one hour? Stay up and pray that you enter not into temptation. So it means watch and pray. Watch simply means stay awake. He says, one hour. And I've got news for you, and I'm totally serious. If you are not in the habit, or if you're in the habit of only praying while you're doing something else, and again, nothing wrong with doing that, you will find it difficult to pray. Just pray for 10 minutes. If you haven't done it, now if you're in the habit of doing it, I get it. But if you're not, if every time you pray, it's while you're doing something else, try just praying for 10 minutes and see how long time is. You think time's going too fast? Spend 10 minutes praying. And I think there's a clue here because it's not boredom. It's certainly not lack of things to pray about. And I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but I think in many cases buried somewhere in the habit of non-praying is an element of unbelief, a lack of faith. Hear me out. I know I should pray. But even if my prayers are a waste of time, I'm at least getting the lawn mowed. We would never consciously phrase it that way. But there's something there like, yeah, I should pray, but I also need to do something productive. And what's the implication there? That my prayers are unproductive. If we truly understood the power of prayer, we would clear the decks on a regular basis. Let me quickly reiterate a couple of things about fasting and praying, and then I'll move on to my final scripture and then a preview of next week. I mentioned Nineveh last week. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. This is, you know, Jonah has been instructed to go to Nineveh. He argues with God, runs from the call of God, because not because he's afraid of the Ninevites, but because he's afraid of his effective preaching. He says, if I obey God, they're going to repent, and God's going to spare them. We can't have that, so I'm splitting. He gets on a ship, and God brings up a storm. Uh, the ship is about to go down. He admits, ah, this, this... Whole thing's happening because of me. If you want the storm to stop, if you want to save the ship, throw me over. So they do. He's swallowed by a great fish. He's in the belly of the fish for three days. He prays. He gets his heart right. The fish vomits him up on the shore. And off to Nineveh, Jonah goes. And he gets there and traverses the city saying, yet 40 days and this city will be overthrown. And it says here in verse 5, Jonah chapter 3. So the people of Nineveh, listen, the people of Nineveh believed God. Proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself in sackcloth and sat in ashes, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat Or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Verse 10, Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, And God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now notice that the people proclaimed a fast. Jonah did not say, fast and pray and turn from your evil ways, or God's going to smite you. All we know for sure that Jonah said is, God's going to wipe this city out. But the people proclaimed a fast. I think we mentioned this last week. Hey, Buddhists fast, Zoroastrians fast, Muslims fast. Fasting is not unique to the Christian faith. It wasn't unique back then to the Jewish faith. It was a a pretty universal response to uh, making some sort of supplication to the gods or to God. The people, though, proclaimed a fast because they believed Jonah's preaching. They believed God. And then the king humbled himself, and the king made the fast an official policy. everybody's going to fast, even the animals because who knows but look what it says he commanded he didn't just do this he commanded the people to fast and to cry mightily to God and to turn from evil. This was the decree that made us that made difference made a difference. this is the decree that caused God to relent in what he said he was going to do. It says God saw their works. He's not talking about the fasting. He didn't look down and say, oh, they're not eating. I guess I'll spare them. The fasting was for them. They realized that there was something much more important at stake than eating, or in this case, even drinking. The king was granted wisdom to realize that what they needed in that moment was to use all of their will all of their time, all their passion in seeking God for deliverance and in repenting from sin. And what's it say? God saw their works. What were those works? It's right there quoted, that they turned from their evil way. What saved Nineveh? Prayer and repentance. Not fasting, but fasting helped them to pray and repent. Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17, we'll pick it up in 14. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, Jesus, and kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Verse 21, However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. There's a version of this same, same story in Mark that ends pretty much the same way. Uh, there are some translations that in verse 21 it simply says, this kind comes out only by prayer. Uh, but for what it's worth, many of the older manuscripts, and this is reflected in some of the newer translations. A lot of the newer translations, we tend to blow them off, I think, unfairly. Not everybody, uh, but it's like, well, they're just trying to make it easier to read. That's not what they're for. The, a lot of these new translations, more recent translations, are taking advantage of newly discovered, older, reliable manuscripts. New American Standard Bible was my go-to Bible for study for many, many years for that very, very reason. And I, I love the King James. I love the New King James. I still think it's an easy one to read out of. It's accurate enough to teach out of. But there's, I say all that to say, in many of these older and more reliable manuscripts, verse 21 isn't in there at all. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus didn't think it was important and valuable to pray and fast. But think about this. What's, look at what his response is right off the bat. Why couldn't we cast it out? And he didn't say, well, there's a number of reasons, uh, and you need to know this is a special kind of demon that only comes out by prayer and fasting, and you guys haven't done that. No, he says right off the because of your unbelief. He's training these guys. He had a relationship. He could be blunt. Yeah, if you really had faith, you think you tried to cast this demon out in faith, but you didn't. Maybe you're trying to cast it out because, uh, in your mind, because of our relationship, it's going to go out. No, you, you're, you, uh, you need to understand your authority. You need to be acting in faith. You could speak to a mountain, let alone a demon, and the mountain would move. So he, he sort of rebukes them, corrects them. And then he's going to add on, oh, but it wouldn't have made any difference anyway because you got to fast and pray for this demon. Either the faith was going to make a difference or it wasn't. Lester Summerall told the story, uh, obviously, many years ago. And he was somewhere overseas. I want to say in the Philippines, but I don't remember exactly where he went so many places. But he was approached by some people who said, there's somebody in this village next that we're going to tomorrow who is severely demon-possessed. Would you be willing to confront this, this man and cast the demon out? And they said, yes, absolutely. So Lester and his team, I don't know, there were four or five of them, maybe uh, a handful of guys. It wasn't a huge team, but he said, he said they agreed to fast and pray until they met with this demoniac in the next town. And so when they did, the next town, they got over there, and they brought this man to him. And Lester began to speak to this demon in this man and says, I command you to come out. And the demon spoke through the man and says, no, he didn't fast. And pointed to one of the guys on the team. And he hadn't. Now, that is a perfect example of the devil being a legalist. When he tries to pile on you, when he tries to... Interfere with your faith and your rights as a child of God, he will always pull out something from your past, some way that you blew it, and try to make you, try to fool you into believing that this all depends on you. And he will use the word of God against you. He'll try. He'll use your guilt against you, your sin against you. And what's our only answer? The blood of Jesus. This is where my authority comes from. This is where my righteousness comes from. And Lester Summerall, he wasn't going to get, you know, if you know anything about his ministry, he didn't take lip from demons. Didn't take lip from demons. Uh, he says, this ain't about who fasted. This is about the name and power of the blood of Jesus. Now you come out of this man now, and he did. I love, I love this story of him. It uh, says nothing to do with anything. He, he heard something. He was staying, again, on a ministry trip. Uh, and he heard something downstairs like, like somebody s- scraping or scooting something. he went down there, and a piece of furniture I don't know if it was a, a bed or a couch or something was being pushed. And it was just a demon messing with him, trying to scare him. You know, p- people who don't believe in the spirit world as we do would say, "Well, it was a ghost or something." but it was a f- physical manifestation of a demon moving a piece of furniture. And he said he was given he, he had a, a moment, a, a gift of uh, discerning of spirits. And he saw the demon. He could see some representation. He said, stop right now in the name of Jesus and get out. He said he began to see this spirit move toward the door. And he said, stop. Put it back first. (laughs) Anyway. Fasting in the New Testament typically might be understood more of this. Praying with such fervency that meals were not taken into account. Not, we are going to set these three days aside. Again, you can do that, but it was all about the fervency of prayer. I'm going to share one last passage with you, very familiar to you, no doubt, from James chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Is, any, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now there is a lot to unpack here, and I'm going to do some of that next week. I just wanted you to give, I, wanted, I read all that to give you the context of this famous passage. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. A prayer is effective when it is offered to God the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus and in faith. There is a right way to pray. And I think every time I mention this passage, I I tell you how I used to cringe. There was one song we sang, and it was a good song. It just opened with a line that drove me nuts. And the line was, you don't have to know how to pray. You just need to know how to say Jesus. And that's not what Jesus said. When this disciple said, teach us to pray. He didn't say, you know my name, don't you? It's all you need to know. He taught him to pray. There's a right way to pray. We understand who we're praying to, who we're praying through, what we're praying by, and what is our, are we, when I talk about the prayer offered in faith, there is a difference between biblical effective prayer and begging God. Begging God is not the prayer of faith. It's not the most effective way. I'm not saying God has never answered somebody who's begging. But that's his prerogative. He has bound himself to answer the prayer of faith. Fervent. This is the only part that fasting has anything to do with. At least potentially. If our fervency in prayer brings us to the point where we can do without something else. And I think what fasting does is kind of flips that on its head a little bit in a good way. It's training us. There's more, there are more productive things to do, more valuable things to do. Uh, even though eating right now would be more enjoyable, my fervency of prayer, I need to stoke the fervency of my prayer. And the only way to do that now is to make a decision to do this instead of what I would, at the moment, rather be doing. The effective, fervent prayer of the righteous man, the righteous person. And this goes back to what I mentioned before my sermon, which is, who is that? This is where we get tripped up. I'll pray as I've been trained to pray. I'll pray in faith. It's going to be an effective prayer. I'm going to pray fervently. I'll even fast. But I'm not getting my prayers answered because I did this. I can't stop doing that. Whatever. The only righteousness that means anything in your prayer closet, in the throne room, is the righteousness that God has clothed you with, purchased by the blood of Jesus that makes you clean. Doesn't mean our actions have nothing to do with anything. Our lives, it should be a constant process of recognizing these things. If we see something in our life that is displeasing to God, Lay it down. Repent. Make it a matter of prayer. Lord, I want to be free from this. Again, if it's something that's habitual. But you will never, in terms of just your behavior, be righteous enough, be righteous enough to qualify for that kind of access to God's throne. So who is the righteous man? The born-again believer, blood-washed child of God. It's you. It's me already. Praise the worship team. You can be uh, making your way up here. Next week, we're going to look at a couple of extraordinary examples of the power of prayer. We're going to look at uh, uh, one uh, example from Abraham's life, two from Moses, and at least one other. For now, I want you to listen to what I just said. If a righteous person prays, if a righteous person, person prays right and prays fervently, it will produce results, it will avail much. Stand up with me. Because we can be taught to pray effectively. We can learn, train ourselves to pray fervently. But we have to be made righteous. That's the hang-up a lot of people have. It's not your goodness that God is looking for. It's Christ's. If you are a born-again child of God, you're righteous He's been, you've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That puts you in the category of people whose prayers avail much. Listen, there, because of my salvation experience, uh, I don't know how many of you have heard my testimony? Most of you have. Uh, where I was in life at that moment, when it came to God and the devil and heaven and hell, I had questions I had maybe some concerns. I was only 12. It wasn't like I had some deep philosophical, theological problems I was puzzling through. But there were things that I thought about. But towering above, there was a huge gap between anything else. You could put 10 or 100 other issues down here. Way, way above that was, am I going to heaven or am I going to hell? Nothing else mattered. None of these mattered if I couldn't get that answered. Because I believed in heaven and hell. I needed answers to that question. And it was the most liberating thing in the world. To know that I could know the answer to that question before I died. And it freed me to explore. Many other things in my relationship with God. Now. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm saying a couple things though. It is important to know where you're going. And it. The offer I'm extending to you among other things is to offer you the assurance when you walk out of these doors today You can walk out of here knowing that heaven is your eternal home Meanwhile as a born-again child of God because this is what it takes you bow the knee before the Lord Jesus Christ If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead You will be saved From that moment on, when you begin to explore the the richness, the depths of the salvation that God has provided you through the finished work of Jesus Christ and his shed blood, you begin to see, oh, that opens the door to some other possibilities. Because God now calls you righteous. And the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Suddenly, I'm in a a position where my prayers can make a difference, not just in my life, but in your life, in the life of the church, in the world. You know, Elijah says, now he was an extraordinary prophet, goes out of the way in the Word of God to say he was a man with a nature just like ours. And when he prayed, it stopped raining for three and a half years. And when he prayed, it started raining again. That made a difference in a lot of people's lives, didn't it? Would you like to have that kind of power in your prayer? Where God lays something on your heart, you take it right back to Him and see it happen, see that prayer avail much? Starts with a relationship with God and that same relationship that gives you that kind of power is the relationship that saves you from the power of sin Saves you from the punishment of sin because Jesus took all of that in his own body and Secures your place in heaven I'm going to pray a prayer here in just a moment But I want you to ask yourself if you've made that decision And if you haven't, give me the privilege and give give us the privilege of witnessing this decision. Give me the privilege of praying you through this. It's a short prayer, but if it comes from your heart, you go from darkness to light, death to life, eternity in hell separated from God, eternity in heaven with God. Most important decision you will ever make in your life and the easiest decision you can ever make in your life. It's a no-brainer. Would you give your life to Christ today? Heavenly Father... Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for the privilege of prayer and the assurance that our prayers are heard and that they matter. I'm praying now. I believe I'm praying according to your will and therefore, according to your word, you hear me when I pray. I believe it's the prayer of every believing saint in this room. That if there's anybody in the sound of my voice who does not have that relationship with you, who doesn't have that assurance of heaven, who doesn't have that confidence in their prayer life, because they lack that relationship, that they would be convicted, that they would be made to know right now that that is a decision that they have not made and that you would grant them the wisdom, the humility, and the boldness to seize this opportunity for that relationship now. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like me to pray with you that prayer of salvation, don't waste any time. Come forward now as we sing this song. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.